The news this week is of a bitterly divided Republican Party. Despite gaining the majority in the U.S. House of Representatives after last year's midterm elections, this week, the Republican Party descended into utter chaos, paralyzing the People's House. The Republican Party was a reaction to the French Revolution. The Republican at the time really meant support for the Republicans in France, those who were uh, rebelling against oh, the Oh, wow. And Jefferson saw the possibility of using these Republican, this Republican network as a kind of vehicle for undermining the Washington Adams administrations, even though he was in the cabinet during President Washington's time and in um, as vice president in uh, Adams administration. John Quincy Adams selected as a, as a as a Republican, although the Republicans are very suspicious of him uh, as being uh, really kind of a closet Federalist or slash monarchist. Mm-hmm. Andrew Jackson's ideas about American nationalism, which really sort of took hold, his idea was uh, a kind of populist racism. It was the notion that so so this idea of American racism uh, was fundamental to their notion of white supremacy and and how it defined American national identity. And against that, Daniel Webster pushed this notion that the Constitution was the organic expression of the will of the American people and that the Constitution made us all Americans, regardless of our race, regardless of where we came from, regardless of our faith, that we are all Americans, we are one nation indivisible. And that's the principle that he saw underlying the Whig Party and by extension, the Republican Party today. Well, the parallels between Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump are, are just like, blow your mind. Did you know that the Republican Party's populism of recent years, particularly its more strident and belligerent brand, championed by Mr. Trump, is not at all rooted in the principles of the Republican Party. It certainly was not practiced by Abraham Lincoln, the Republican Party's first president. Rather, this populism, with its nativist overtones, was planted, promoted, and practiced by Andrew Jackson, the first president of the Democratic Party. No wonder that President Trump hung Andrew Jackson's portrait, and not Abraham Lincoln's, in the Oval Office. Hey there, news peelers. Today is January 6, 2023, and this is Adele, the host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peeling the history behind news, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars, enjoyable and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. 
The 118th Congress convened this week on Tuesday, January 3, 2023. <laughs> but the Republican Party dominated U.S. House of Representatives has failed to show even a semblance of proper function. No business has been conducted for the last three to four days because we have no Speaker of the House. And as of this recording, on the two-year anniversary of the January 6th attack on Congress, Mr. Kevin McCarthy has failed to win the speakership after 11 rounds of voting. Hopefully, by the time you listen to this podcast, our country will have a Speaker of the House so that U.S. representatives can be sworn in, so they can legislate, so they can finally conduct the people's business. In an interview with the Wall Street Journal, a Republican supporter of Mr. McCarthy described the opposition to McCarthy's speakership as a temper tantrum. <laughs> the Republican opposition to Mr. McCarthy's speakership is composed of some 20 members who consider themselves conservative purists. But the New York Times explains that their agenda is mostly to defund, disrupt, and dismantle the government, not to participate in it. Conservative purists. The historical question that comes to mind when I hear that term is, what are the historical roots of the Republican Party, of conservatism? and what are their founding principles? To get answers to these questions, I spoke with Professor Joel Richard Paul, who is a legal scholar and historian, and he teaches constitutional law and other subjects at UC Hastings College of the Law. <laughs> Actually, wait a second. I'm sorry, my bad here. The name of his college is not UC Hastings. You see, after more than 140 years, this prestigious law school changed its name effective January 1st. And in this episode, Professor Paul tells us why that happened and how he feels about it. And he also talks about cancel culture. It's a sober view that I wholeheartedly agree with and wish that more liberals had the courage to express it. Professor Paul has advised the Clinton presidential campaign on trade policy, challenged the military's exclusion of gay service members, and brought other First Amendment cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He has testified before Congress managed political campaigns, and worked on affordable housing policies. In 1991, Professor Paul corroborated the testimony of Professor Anita Hill before the Senate Judiciary Committee hearings on the nomination of Clarence Thomas. He has authored the following books, Fundamentals of U.S. Foreign Trade Policy, a 1996 book, Unlikely Allies, How a Merchant, a Playwright, and a Spy Saved the American Revolution, a 2009 book, Without Precedent, Chief Justice Marshall and His Times, a 2018 book. His most recent book, published just a few months ago, is titled Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. When most of us Americans hear the name Webster, we immediately think of the Webster Dictionary. <laughs> but that was Noah Webster. In this episode, we'll talk about Daniel Webster, who was a giant political figure of the antebellum. He's particularly important this week because of his contributions and impact to the founding principles of the Republican Party. To learn more about Professor Paul, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode, where I have also provided an Amazon link to his latest book, Indivisible. And here's a special shout-out to Penguin Random House to thank the publisher for sending me a copy of this wonderful book, which I read cover to cover and enjoyed immensely. So. Stay with me as Professor Paul and I peel the history behind this news. 
Professor Paul, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Uh, with the Republican Party uh, in chaos now that we've watched in Congress uh, and the House, um, I want us to get into the roots of the Republican Party so we can go way back. Many historians believe that the presidential election of 1800 was the most important election in our country's history because it established the peaceful transfer of power from one party to another. Uh, it was a particularly nasty election, even by today's standards. So in his first inaugural address on March 4, 1801, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, made the following conciliatory statement. We have called by different names, brethren, of the same principle. We're all Republicans. We're all Federalists. Professor Paul, what Republicans was President Jefferson referring to? Well, the Republican Party uh, was not really started by Jefferson. Uh, in fact, the Republican Party was a reaction to the French Revolution. Um, in Reaction to the French Revolution? To the reaction to the French Revolution. Interesting. So the Republican Party grew up um, uh, as a result of the argument over the neutrality policies of the Washington administration. President Washington, as you know, uh, wanted the United States to remain neutral in the wars between France and Britain. Jefferson, his secretary of state, secretly conspired with the French emissary to the United States, Citizen Genet, uh, to- I'm sorry, did you say our secretary of state secretly conspired? Correct, yes. He, oh, he wow. leaked minutes of the cabinet meetings to Genet and plotted with Genet to, to basically create a war which would- <laughs> um, drag the United States into the war with France and uh, on France's side against Britain. Uh, all of this was because, as you know, Jefferson was a, an enthusiastic supporter of the French Revolution. Yeah. And uh, Je and Genet went around the country organizing so-called Republican clubs um, in all the states of uh, people who were enthusiastic about the French Revolution. Republican at the time really meant support for the Republicans in France, those who were uh, rebelling against oh, the Oh, wow. And Jefferson saw the possibility of using these Republican, this Republican network as a kind of vehicle for undermining the Washington Adams administrations, even though he was in the cabinet during President Washington's time and in um, as vice president in uh, Adams administration. And he was successful, of course, um, and he came to power uh, in 1800. And the Federalists uh, uh, criticized the Republicans as- the Federalists being um, a party of John Adams and uh, Washington, and right? Washington and the, basically Hamilton. those people, Alexander Hamilton, those yeah. people who favored a strong central government and who supported the constitution which Jefferson was kind of skeptical about. So the, the um, Federalists uh, criticized the Republicans as demagogues. Wow. And they used the word Democrats in a, as a, it had a nasty connotation to it at this point in time. And the so they called them the Democratic Republicans. And the R Republicans under Jefferson 
decided to appropriate that term and use it. So they became the Democratic Republican Party. That was Jefferson's party, the Democratic Republican Party. And they were essentially populists. They were uh, in favor of the agrarian slaveocracy in the South. Um, they were hostile to commerce. They were hostile to uh, the growth of cities. Um, they basically were defenders of the status quo. Yeah. And of uh, states' rights over the rights of the national government, which, of course, uh, uh, translated meant that they were defenders of the slaveocracy. That party um, very soon basically drove the Federalists out of office. Um, the Democratic Republican Party was enormously successful under Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe. Um, by the time Monroe- They essentially was, held the White House for what, 20 some years, right? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, and, and so um, for 24 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and they basically had um, dominated uh, the political scene. And then John Quincy Adams, the son of John Adams, runs himself as a Democratic Republican, as a Republican. Um, Not as a Federalist. Not as a Federalist. So the Federalists at this point are just kind of, you know, there's one or two of them kicking around like John Marshall, <laughs> but basically the Federalists are not taken very seriously. Okay. So so John Quincy Adams selected as a, as a, as a Republican, although the Republicans are very suspicious of him uh, as being uh, really kind of a closet Federalist or slash monarchist. I love it. Closet Federalist. Okay. And, and, and then, um, uh, uh, you have Jackson, who was also running as a Republican, because that's the only party around, right? Uh, and and Jackson accuses uh, John Quincy Adams falsely of having won the presidency in a so-called corrupt bargain. Yeah, yeah. With uh, Henry Clay, uh, and he uses this as his sort of. Um, uh, taking off point to get the win the presidency in 1828. So Jackson gets elected in 1828. And Jackson, he basically um, represents one wing of the Republican Party. And that wing becomes known as the democracy, um, uh, meaning that they want to uh, generally increase the availability of the franchise to allow all white men to vote regardless of their property class. The other wing of the Republican party, which is um, represented by John Quincy Adams is the National Republicans. And the National Republicans, which includes uh, Henry Clay, um, John Quincy Adams and uh, Daniel Webster, they become uh, the party of uh, a government, a commerce, um, they're sort of more future oriented. Um, mm. It's the it's the Republicans that we think of today is kind of like their roots are in this national. Interesting Republican national way. Republicans. But just as a point of clarification, as we're moving on in time, uh, the in the eighteen twenty four election, uh, the three or four candidates that won that run Henry Clay, um, uh, John Quincy Adams, uh, Andrew Jackson. I think there was a fourth candidate. They all ran within the same 
party, although they were different segments, different wings of the same party. And after that, in 1828, it I don't want to use the word officially, but more or less officially sort of splinters, Jackson creates his own party of democracy that later becomes known as the Democratic Party. Did I summarize that correctly? That That's correct. That's correct. Yes, exactly. Wow. And, okay. and so the Democratic Party really starts with Jackson. Um, and the Republican Party has its roots with John Quincy Adams and the National Republicans, but they aren't known as the Republican Party today. The National Republicans uh, basically fail because the, uh, Jackson and uh, his successors are so enormously popular that the Democratic Party kind of crowds out the National Republicans. Plus, John um, Quincy Adams was not a good politician to boot. John right? Quincy <laughs> Adams was probably the most qualified man who was ever in the presidency, and he had no idea how to be a politician. Exactly. He was yeah. highly qualified. He'd been an ambassador to many different countries, and he was extremely well-educated, a brilliant man. His diaries are one of the most interesting pieces of uh, primary research I did for this book. Well, oh, that must the, have been exciting. Um, the... the um, Jacksonians, the Jacksonians uh, represented, again, this sort of Jeffersonian agrarian slaveocracy vision of America. Um, the National Republicans eventually merge with several other splinter groups to form the Whigs. Uh, uh, and the Whigs uh, take the name Whigs in opposition to Jackson. So the idea of the Whigs in Britain was they were the loyal opposition to the Tories. And, and the Whigs then are formed in opposition to Jackson, but the Whigs really have nothing in common with each other. The <laughs> so Whigs of Britain and the Whigs of America at the, that point. No, the Whigs in, in America, the, 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 the coalition of groups that- Oh, that within themselves, they have nothing in common. Yes. So, so there are people who are- Southern Whigs who are pro-slavery, there are Northern Whigs who are anti-slavery, there are people who are pro-infrastructure, people who are anti, people who are pro-immigration, anti-immigration. It was all over. It was just, it was just like the one thing they had in common was they all hated what Andrew Jackson represented, which was basically a populist autocrat. And so they came together with that idea. And it's the Whigs who subsequently transmogrify into our Republican Party today under Lincoln. Lincoln becomes uh, the first Republican president. In your book, which we'll get into in more detail in a moment, Professor Paul, you state that the formation of the Whig Party was the beginning of political maturity, or perhaps the loss of innocence. What do you mean by that? Why the formation of the Whig Party? Yeah, because basically- And if I may please, that's like in the 1840s, 1850s, 50s. Am I saying that correctly? We've already had 60, 70 years of our republic. Well, well so, so, the, so the Whig Party um, uh, begins to come together um, uh, during the administration of uh, Mar uh, Martin Van Buren. Okay. So it's earlier. So it's like uh, 1836. Uh -huh. And um, they are a dominant party right through the, the 1840s. And, and the Whigs and the Republicans, or the I'm sorry, the Whigs and the Democrats are really kind of uh, the beginning of the two-party system in America. Um, 
They were both uh, national parties. They had uh, an infrastructure like a political party today. Obviously, is that is that why you uh, is that why you say maturity beginning of political maturity? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. it, it, I, I think it was it was a period of um, kind of learning how to be a political party. <laughs> um, and, you know, campaigns began to uh, look like what a modern political campaign would look like for president, which which hadn't been true previous to that. I mean, uh, you know, like, the, the go out and openly campaign. Is that what you mean? Right. And yeah, organize. Cause the, right. Because the, the framers of our Constitution really imagined that what we were doing in, in the elections in, in for president was our state legislators would choose electors who would be the wise men of their communities and they would all get together and they would decide who should be president. They didn't really want to have a popular election. That wasn't, that wasn't part of the plan at all. <laughs> and um, right up until I think 18, sometime like around 1850, up until like around 1850, there were still states that didn't have popular elections for electors, that the, wow. that it was the state legislators who were choosing the yeah. electors. Yeah. And so, um, uh, it didn't occur to people that you would, you would like campaign for office. It was like campaigning to be Pope, you know, you, you had to be chosen sort of because, because you were wise and you were respected and you, you know, you were a person of, of stature, but that all changes with yeah. people like Andrew Jackson. Yeah. who himself, he doesn't campaign for office, but he has his lieutenants who go out and they start all these newspapers to create disinformation uh, about his opponents. And he, um, you know, it's, it's, it's much more like a national campaign, but when probably the first real national campaign would have been campaign of William Henry Harrison. In the last 30 seconds we have left of this segment, I just want to go back to your, the phrase that you use, the loss of innocence. Yes. Is the formation of the two-party system, is that what you consider the loss of innocence? Or, you know, yeah, the because fact I that, think that I think that ahead. the formation of the two-party system is an acknowledgement that it's very difficult to define the common good. That that that, that the notion that Madison and 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 Jefferson had was sort of like rational people would get together and we could all agree on what the common good was. And what the formation of the Whig party represented was the acknowledgement that we have, you know, people of good, of, of good faith who have just different visions of what America should be. And, and it's, and it's that which I consider to be the loss of innocence. And that continues to our day. Now, as we see in our politics, we'll be back after a short break to talk about the founding principles of the Republican Party. We'll be right back. What is it like to testify before the US Congress? <laughs> and what happens afterwards? Do US representatives and senators come up and talk to you afterwards? I asked that question from a prior guest of our program, Professor Gerhardt. He should know because he has testified more than 20 times before Congress, including as the only joint witness in the Clinton impeachment proceedings in the House speaking behind closed doors to the entire House of Representatives in 1998 about the history of impeachment. He also testified as one of the four constitutional scholars called by the House Judiciary Committee 
during President Trump's impeachment proceedings. Professor Gerhardt told me the story of what happened after one particular congressional testimony when Mr. Mike Pence approached him. He also talked to me about Mr. Trump's attempt at a comeback to the White House in 2024, and he compared it with Andrew Jackson's, Grover Cleveland's, and Richard Nixon's successful comebacks. I've provided a link to that conversation in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Paul. Professor Paul, we talked about um, um, Thomas Jefferson and the election of 1800 and his inaugural address in 1801. So let's fast forward to another presidential election, the 1844 election in which Henry Clay, one of my all-time favorite characters in American history, who was the nominee of the Whig Party, loses to an Andrew Jackson protege, James Polk, who is an interesting story in and of itself. Polk was the nominee of the Democratic Party, and it was a big deal that the Whigs lost. I think it was Henry Clay's last attempt, third attempt to, to, to run for presidency, and he lost all three. In all of this, Daniel Webster, who you mentioned, and we'll talk about more, a giant political figure in America from New Hampshire and Massachusetts, he's a member of the Whig Party, and he makes the following statement. Whigs must hold fast to their principles on the presumption that the people are reasonable, capable of being enlightened and of being brought to see and to embrace the truth. Let's parse this sort of apart. What principles was he talking about? Do we know? At the early part of our republic, there were uh, competing ideas about what it meant to be an American. Uh, and these ideas about who was an American and uh, what it, how people identified with the United States were, were in competition with each other. People thought of themselves initially as Virginians or New Yorkers, South Carolinians. They didn't think of themselves as Americans. America was really a concept. It was a, it was a hypothetical. It was something that people maybe aspired to be, but it didn't really exist. Uh, you mean it was more regional it, and more sort of ideological? It was, it was, it was more, more of a state identity, mm -hmm. sometimes a regional identity. Uh, certainly, um, John C. Calhoun tried to sort of encourage people to think in terms of regionalism. Uh, <clears throat> Henry Clay tried to identify people with um, the, ex try to identify the nation rather uh, with the expansion of infrastructure. John C. Calhoun imagined that the territory defined us as Americans, that the whole continent was intended to be the United States. What we think of as the Monroe Doctrine was really John C. was John Quincy Adams' uh, uh, doctrine. He was the one who who created the Monroe Doctrine uh, as Secretary of State, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and um, it was. Uh, it was Andrew Jackson's ideas about American nationalism, which really sort of took hold. His idea was uh, a kind of populist racism. It was the notion that- uh, Populist racism. Oh, wow. For, okay. For, America was intended for white European men. That, that's, who, that's who owned this country. And, and uh, indigenous tribes uh, were just like obstacles in his way. Um, uh, African-Americans had no place here, um, that they were just convenient 
uh, uh, servants to be enslaved. Um, and Mexicans didn't belong here either, even though it was their country that we were you know, <laughs> seizing in the case of the yeah. Mexican-American War. So, so this idea of American racism uh, was fundamental to their notion of white supremacy and, and how it defined American national identity. And against that, Daniel Webster pushed this notion that the Constitution was the organic expression of the will of the American people, and that the Constitution made us all Americans, regardless of our race, regardless of where we came from, regardless of our faith, that we are all Americans, we are one nation indivisible. And that's the principle that he saw underlying the Whig oh, wow. Party and by extension, the Republican Party today. That's so progressive. Yes, it was a very progressive idea. And, and it's important to understand that the success of Daniel Webster, Daniel Webster ultimately triumphed over Jackson's racism. And from the 18, uh, certainly by 1850, if not earlier in the 1840s, uh, forward right up until the election of Donald Trump, the dominant idea in American life was that the Constitution is what made us Americans, and we were all Americans, and people came here from all over the world, and we regarded them as Americans. We, they may have faced discrimination, but that ultimately everyone became an American by virtue of our Constitution. And it's that idea that Donald Trump and you know, the MAGA movement challenged. So the principles that the Republican Party and mostly pretty much our country abided by were the principles that Webster was talking about here, right? Right. The the Republican the Whig Party first, and then subsequently the Republican Party yeah. and Lincoln were founded on this notion um, that this was a big country and it was open to all, and it wasn't the exclusive domain of of white Christians. White Christian nationalism is a denial of American history. It is a denial of the principles that underlay the Whigs, uh, Lincoln, the Civil War, and the Republican Party, uh, and the, the principles which were dominant in America's psyche for centuries. Professor Paul, do you think Webster was a bit naive in making that statement? Re let me read it again. Whigs, and we can say instead of Whigs, Republicans, because it eventually becomes the Republican Party, Whigs must hold fast to their principles on the presumption that the people are reasonable, capable of being enlightened, and of being brought to see and to embrace the truth. I ask this because, because of what's happening in the last several years, fake news, election denying. Are we really reasonable, uh, capable of being enlightened? I mean, this almost sounds laughable i'm not laughing at mr webster or his legacy but in light of what's happened yeah well i i uh i, I think it's a good point um uh, the the ideas that underlay webster's thinking um were the ideas of the enlightenment the notion that uh, people uh could be governed by reason and that we could we could reach uh reasonable conclusions that we could find compromises that we could pursue the common good and and that does seem hopelessly naive today given the uh, deep divisions in our country one should remember though 
that he was making this assertion uh, uh, in, in the years leading up to the Civil War, where the country was anything but divided, uh, anything but united, rather. Yeah, the yeah, country yeah. was deeply polarized and divided, and, and, and uh, the threat of secession was a constant threat that, that Webster was pushing against. Webster's, Webster's two big principles were the principles of, of preserving the union and opposing slavery. Those are the two things that he that he supported. And, and, and of course, those two things uh, came uh, into conflict. Was this statement, the, the reason I'm belaboring this, I'm trying to sort of transport myself mentally into that time period and, and correlate it with where we are now uh, in our history. Was Mr. Webster's statement of, you know, people are reasonable, capable of being enlightened, there was no social media. It's not like he tweeted this. He spoke it or wrote it somewhere. Would this statement have been laughable or just completely out of reality in his time? Because based on everything I've read, including your book, politics was a big brawl back then, <laughs> like it is now, right? Yeah. Well, uh, so so this is where we sort of get into the conflict between populism uh, uh, which was represented by by Andrew Jackson, um, and and the notion that the country um, could be governed by reason, uh, and and uh, um, uh, Webster believed, and um, other members of the Whig Party believed that um, ultimately the sort of the elite would govern the country, um, that people of education and of good principles and good character could govern the country and restore a sense of uh, decency and reason to the country. Um, and, you know, on the other side, you know, you had folks who um, uh, like the Know Nothing Party that was opposing uh, immigrants and Catholics. I love that name, Know Nothing Party. Yeah, right. Well, that, that wasn't the name that they gave themselves, but yes, basically, yes, they were the Know Nothing Party. They embraced that. They appropriated that that, that oh, title. Boy. But they, they weren't the Know Nothing because they didn't know anything. They were the Know Nothings because they, if they were asked about their membership, their membership was often secret. And so they would say, I don't know anything about that, you know. Oh my God, that almost like like a Masonic membership or something. Yes, right. Uh, um, what's really interesting about this uh, ideological statement, this this elitist, this visionary statement by Mister Webster, and and you reference, um, you talk about, you know, he saw uh, elite would govern the country. The first Republican president, in fact, was not an elitist at all. He comes from. You know, everyone knows the story of Lincoln, humble beginnings. And now we're dealing with anti-elitist Republicans, right? That's that's what we're dealing with. Which brings me to populism and popular nationalism of the Republican Party. Um, this this really is, 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 is as if history has flipped. This really is Jackson's story, right? The populism that Mr. Trump is has started and we see it sort of endure in factions of the Republican party. This was really a democratic party story. Am I saying that correctly? 
Yes, absolutely, absolutely. You, you have to you have to see the Republican Party as a response to reaction against the Democratic Party, the democratizing forces of the Democratic Party, which itself has its roots in the second uh, the Second Great Awakening, uh, the early part of the nineteenth century. But but the but the Republicans were 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 viewed as conservatives in the sense that they were seeking to protect. Um, business, commerce, people of property tended to be in the Republican camp, um, at least in the North. And the South, of course, people of, of property held slaves and they were part of the slaveocracy. But the, but the Republican Party, uh, at least in its time, were seen as conservatives, but I would say they were progressive conservatives. And what I mean by that term is this, that they were like Edmund Burke. They were people who believed that in order to preserve- Edmund Burke being the Irish parliamentarian in Britain, right? Yes. Okay, go ahead. And, and Edmund Burke, you know, who was a, who was a great defender of uh, the American Revolution, um, or the American colonies anyway, the, uh, Burke believed um, in conservative values um, like private property, free market, free trade, um, you know, family, religion, faith. But in order to protect those things, Burke believed that it was necessary to pursue progressive policies that would bring everyone into the fold, that, that gave everybody a stake in society. What the, what the Whigs and That's the Republican Party, like under Lincoln, thought was that commerce, um, economic growth, prosperity would help all Americans to prosper, that everyone should prosper, that everyone would have a stake in this country and that they would therefore uh, want to defend democracy and support uh, uh, the status quo. So it's sort of inclusive, inclusive exactly. conservatism. Uh, is, inclusive is that... conservatism or what yeah. I call progressive conservatism. Yeah, that's right. And and that's what Webster was. That's what Lincoln was. Lincoln, you know, was the uh, made his made his fortune as as a corporate lawyer that's you know, right he even tried a patent case <laughs> yeah uh, yeah he, he you know he defended the big railroads that's how he made his fortune um if you recall back in 2016 when it it it, it became inevitable that mr trump is going to be the republican party's nominee uh many of your colleagues many historians began comparing uh, candidate nominee Trump to Andrew Jackson. And having heard you for the last few minutes, it sort of makes sense in some respects. Uh, well, the parallels between Andrew Jackson and Donald Trump are are just like, blow your mind. Um, <laughs> and, Andrew Jackson uh, ran for office and, and was elected on a wave of Southern populism. Um, he had no real platform other than his false accusation that he had been cheated out of the presidency by a corrupt bargain that never took place between Henry Clay and um, John Quincy Adams. Um, he was plagued by a sex scandal that he uh, outlived. Um, he practiced widespread disinformation about his 
opponent, President Wait, Trump. you're talking about Jackson or Trump now? It's starting to sound really similar I'm, here. I'm talking about Jackson. And and, and Jackson, um, Jackson's reputation uh, was that he was basically an uneducated, um, uh, impulsive, violent man uh, with a uh, cruel past. Um, and... Um, uh, he was admired for this and he gets elected. And what does he do as president? He concentrates all the power in the white house. He behaves like an autocrat. He ignores all the constitutional norms of his office. He becomes mired in another sex scandal involving his cabinet members. Um, he faces the first pandemic that the United States had ever faced at that point. Um, and, um, and, and, and in the midst of this pandemic, uh, all these people are calling on Jackson to do something. And Jackson says, no, I'm not going to, this isn't my job. I'm not going to do anything. And when his own daughter-in-law writes to him and says, she's frightened, frightened of dying, Jackson's response is, listen, you know, dear, everybody's got to die sometime. Don't worry about it. Um, I mean, that kind of insensitivity uh, and indifference uh, to the public's danger. And what does he do in the government? Well, he, he basically fires hundreds of perfectly capable, uh, hardworking, honest civil servants and replaces them with his incompetent uh, cronies, many of whom turned out to be corrupt. Um, uh, and he doesn't care because his job is basically, he wants to, he wants to basically shrink or destroy the national government. He wants to defend states' rights. He is a racist. Uh, he wants to rid the country of the Native American tribes. And he wants to abolish the national bank and basically crush all the other banks because he has no understanding of economics. And he thinks that banks and bankers are bad people. And commerce and finance is a bad thing. And basically, we should all be part of the slaveocracy. That is who Andrew Jackson was. And if that sounds familiar to anybody, so be it. Yeah, it's it's frighteningly familiar. Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about the birth of American nationalism. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Professor Paul, your recently published book is titled Indivisible, Daniel Webster and the Birth of American Nationalism. Without even knowing it, the word indivisible is ingrained in the minds of most Americans, no doubt, because we say it so mindlessly when we recite the Pledge of Allegiance, one nation under God, indivisible, 
with liberty and justice for all. So why did you incorporate this really massive word, indivisible, into your book's title? Well, I think that it's important to realize that at the founding of our republic, the country was not indivisible, um, that the Constitution was, in fact, from a historical point of view, it was, in fact, a compact of 13 sovereign states. And in order... By to- a compact, Professor Paul, you mean like an, like an agreement? Yeah, it was basically, you know, wow. it was like the the European treaty. It was it was basically a treaty between 13 sovereign states that largely preserved their independence mm-hmm. uh, in many respects. And um, uh, it was uh, its chief accomplishment over the Articles of Confederation was that it eliminated barriers to trade between the 13 states and established a, a, a customs union, essentially. Uh, John Rutledge, who was a Supreme Court justice, once famously said that the framers got together to write a constitution and they founded a nation by accident, uh, which is essentially (laughs) what what happened. Wow. Um, And and so um, to create a nation, it was necessary to create a myth. Um, And the myth that... John Marshall and Daniel Webster, John Marshall is chief justice of the Supreme Mm -hmm. Court, Daniel Webster is the leading advocate before the Supreme Court in his day. The myth that they created was that the Constitution was the organic expression of the will of all of the American people, that that it wasn't just those white guys with property in a room in Philadelphia who wrote the Constitution and people like them who subsequently ratified it in in the different states. It was all of us vicariously represented by them, that we had all somehow assented to this essentially social contract that bound us together as a nation and made us indivisible. And of course, Webster is arguing this point in the context of the constant, constant threat of secession and nullification by Southern states. And so he had to persuade people that this was a an indivisible union. And the way he did it was because of the power of his oratory. Yeah, you talk about that in your book quite a lot, and it's very impressive. I can even sort of feel it in the written word. Um, in your book uh, about Webster, you attribute this to Webster. You say the Constitution is the glue that would hold the union together. Um, I think it's your interpretation of his uh, work. Do you think that statement applies now? And I asked that question in particular because of what our former president, Mr. Trump, um, said apparently in social media about suspending the Constitution. Do you think the Constitution is still a glue? It's a good question. And, you know, I teach constitutional law. um, uh, And one of the ideas that I try to impress on my students is that the Constitution exists in two forms. There is the written constitution itself, the words on the page, but there is also a a culture of constitutionalism, which infuses and informs everything we do as a nation. When Donald Trump tried to uh, orchestrate a coup to prevent the peaceful transfer of power on January 6th, 
That coup was prevented, not because of the words on the page of the Constitution, but because of the men and women who were willing to risk their lives to defend the principles and the legitimacy of what the Constitution represented. So the Constitution today, I mean, Mr. Trump can talk about canceling the Constitution. He talks about terminating the Constitution. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He has to terminate not just the words on the page, but the thinking in the minds of every American that is what informs us about the legitimacy of our form of government and indeed of our social life. Um, in your book, I came across a really interesting passage. Uh, you suggest that Thomas Jefferson and his party, the Democratic Republican Party, which sort of continued all the way to the end of Monroe's presidency, 1824, placed a declaration of independence above the Constitution. Essentially, Jefferson was not exactly overjoyed about the Constitution. I've, I've read this in other sources as well. Um, Professor Paul, you realize that this interpretation is, is probably new to most Americans, right? Um, are you suggesting that Thomas Jefferson's party placed um, 4th of July above other important days in our history, for example, um, the, the the ratification of the Constitution or the first inauguration of a U.S. president, George Washington. Is, uh, did I get your sort of uh, story here correctly? Am I paraphrasing yeah, it nearly? Go ahead. Yeah, right. That's exactly right. And, and, and I mean, um, one could ask the question, why on earth do we celebrate July 4th? As opposed to the I, ratification, I, I, I don't think ever, anyone Washington's birthday or George Washington's inauguration yeah. or any number of other holidays, we celebrate July Fourth because Thomas Jefferson made it a national holiday, and he made it a national holiday in a self-serving way because Thomas Jefferson claimed falsely that he was the sole author of the Declaration. He wasn't. He wrote the original draft of the uh, of the of the Declaration, but it was, of course, then subsequently reworked by a committee, and. Uh, Jefferson, uh, of course, he had a, a laboring hand in in the in the drafting of the Constitution uh, of the Declaration, but he wanted it to be a statement associated not just with him but with with his party, and so he uses July Fourth as a celebration of the Republican Party, and that's what the the origin of July Fourth was. That is fascinating. Did he? And, and July 4th, I should also point out one other thing, which is the Constitution, up until the time of uh, Chief Justice John Marshall and his decision in Marbury versus Madison in 1803, up until 1803, people were kind of vague about what the Constitution was. Was it a law or was it simply a kind of a oratory statement of goals or a kind of state of principles aspirational kind of like mission statement for the country was it only that or was it law and, and it was marshall who elevated the constitution over the declaration of independence it was marshall who said who basically says the constitution is law the declaration of independence is a bunch of nice words on a page but the constitution is the supreme law of the land for our listeners who suffer from family feuds, I just want you to know Marshall was Jefferson's cousin and they didn't quite get along, right? Yeah, they hated each other. That's right. They, they hated each other. Um, one of the things that came to mind as I was reading your book, uh, is recently I we had uh, 
other episodes about Chile, about Iran. No, no comparison with the United States. But the point that uh, piqued my interest is that Chileans or Iranians had actually voted for their various constitutions. And I'm not saying those are good constitutions. I'm just saying the act of actually voting. And as I read your book more, and you know, I'm listening, I'm, I'm reading about Daniel Webster. I'll share one line here with you: the people's constitution, the people's government. Um, you know, the people of the United States have declared that the Constitution shall, shall be the supreme law. These are words from your book. It sort of occurred to me that we Americans never voted for a Constitution. It's never happened, right? Well, not only that, but when they wrote the Constitution, the the Constitutional Convention was not supposed to be a Constitutional Convention. The Constitutional Convention was supposed to suggest changes to the Articles of Confederation, and you know. James Madison shows up uh, with a, a draft of a constitution in his back pocket and says, let's do this instead. So the constitution itself, and th then they created their own process by which they would ratify and make it the constitution. The whole thing was unconstitutional. Our constitution is unconstitutional. <laughs> and, and, and they did all of this and people kind of went along with it, but it wasn't in any sense approved by a majority of people. Now you could say, well, the the guys who went to the ratification uh, conventions in yeah, various states yeah. were themselves elected. But yeah, but they were elected by a handful of white propertied men. Yeah, Women couldn't vote. People without property couldn't vote. African-Americans mostly couldn't vote. Um, Native Americans couldn't vote. So they didn't represent America. Um, and so there had to be this sort of process of mythologizing the constitution as the organic expression of the american people and that's what daniel webster did through his rhetoric that's that's really fascinating uh let's take a break here stay with me and professor paul as we get into the perspective the history behind news podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms of course we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast especially on apple and spotify and remember don't keep us to yourself tell a friend about the history behind news podcast professor paul our cool Treatment of Native Americans is one of the themes in your book. Um, I learned a lot, for example, about the Trail of Tears that President Van Buren had a big role in this sort of merciless implementation, perhaps even a bigger role than, than, than President Jackson, who had started it all. President Polk's 1844 victory was partially attributed to Native Americanism, which is an interesting term. It has nothing to do with what we now call Native Americans, right? And what we used to call American Indians until recently. In fact, Native Americans, Native Americanism of Polk's time, the 1840s, and for decades thereafter throughout history, including the 1920s, which we had the Red Scare and xenophobia and what have you, was against Native Americans, American Indians, right? That's right. Yes, exactly. Uh, nativism mm -hmm. comes from Native American. Native American referred to white people who lived in this country uh, for <laughs> just generations wild. or more and who opposed immigrants, uh, opposed uh, indigenous tribes, 
Um, and uh, the term Native American is a relatively recent vintage. Uh, yeah. I know a lot of people who are active in the American Indian movement and um, the leaders of the American Indian movement um, have said to me that, or some of the leaders have said to me that uh, people who actually grew up on reservations, people, older uh, people, uh, tribal people have uh, pre preference the term Indian because that's the term they grew up with as opposed to Native American. Native Interesting. American, think about it is also kind of a, uh, it's a kind of anachronistic term because the word America, of course, comes from Amerigo Vespucci, yeah. an Italian navigator. And how, why would the people who were members of the tribal nations think of themselves <laughs> as Americans. But in Canada, uh, they call them first nation, which is, and I first think it's nations, a, I think is a better, much better. It is. Term. Yeah. 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 Because uh, the truth is that they were nations. They were nations, the same as the Germans or the French or the British, they were nations and, and they may not have had States as such, uh, but they had national identities and languages and cultures. And it makes more sense to think of them as nations. Do Elements of nativism or Native Americanism, uh, the way that it existed uh, in the 1840s, and uh, still persist in the Republican Party? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, you know, what what are we seeing right now in in the uh, uh, spectacle on the floor of the House of Representatives, uh, where? The Speaker of the House has really no control over his own party. What we see is we, we see a party which has really gone off the rails um, with a kind of, uh, with one faction of people who are so, uh, who are really reverting to the sort of Jacksonian ideas of populist racism, uh, who believe essentially in white supremacy, who believe that immigrants don't belong here, who deny America's past as an immigrant nation, um, who uh, basically um, want power for power's sake, um, and who, who who appeal to this notion of a white Christian nation that never existed. Our framers weren't white Christians. Most men of the, many of them weren't white Christians. Many of the most powerful, important framing founding fathers of our country were not Christian, um, and. You mean they were not practicing Christian or? They, they... No, I mean, they were not didn't identify as Christians, not in the modern sense of Christian. So, I mean, um, it's true that Washington was baptized as an Anglican, but he didn't go to church. Yeah. Uh, and it's not exactly clear that he thought of himself as a Christian. He never used Christian uh, terminology when he talked about uh, God. Uh, he talked about God. He used uh, Native American terms. He talked about, you know, divine providence or the great father or something like that. Um, John Quincy Adams was a Unitarian. He wasn't a Christian. Um, also, Washington was a Mason and the Masons were deists. The deists were the dominant sort of um, faith of um, the cultural elite or in, at, at this point in time. Um, so people like Jefferson were a deist, uh, Madison, was a deist. Um, they uh, Franklin was a deist. They believed in one God, but not necessarily a Christian God. Jefferson most famously hmm. published his um, 
his version of the New Testament. Only only Jefferson yes, would have the chutzpah to do something like this. Jefferson went through the New Testament and cut out all the miracles and just took the teachings of literally cut them out of the out of the New Testament, and and basically spliced it together and just wrote a book about the teachings of of Jesus that that didn't see Jesus as a divine figure at all, but as a great prophet, um, which is how he's seen by other faiths as well. So uh, these people were not Christian. Um, and the nation, conservative Republicans would not elect Jefferson now, right? No, I mean, conservatives, Republicans would have nothing to do with Jefferson now, yeah. except maybe some of them would find his racism appealing. Do you think uh, nativism or Native Americanism sort of went dormant in the Republican Party uh, and, and came just came out uh, in 2016 with uh, Trump's nomination, or did elements of it exist in the um, you know, 20th century, and they're just not lo loud enough for us to hear. It, it, if Trump has any political genius, and I'm not sure that he does, but if, if anything is to be attributed to Trump's political genius, it is the fact that he revealed for us the deep sense of racism uh, that underlies um many people in our country that underlies a large portion of our population and wow. he appealed to this with his populist ideas which were not just not just racist they, they the, the, the essential the 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 essential idea of populism is the appeal to the majority against the the cultural elite um uh, people of of wealth people uh, immigrants uh, religious minorities or racial minorities that's that's what populists do that's what they do in this country that's what they do in other countries as mm -hmm. well um they're always about turning the majority against somebody else that's what trump did and whether he knew what he was doing or not uh, he did it exceptionally well and so he revealed an underlying dark side to the american psyche but that dark side of the american psyche had been buried for a century after Webster and Lincoln. Yeah. In closing, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about my alma mater, uh, where you're a professor of law. Um, as of January 1st, it's no longer UC Hastings College of the Law. Why change the name after some 144 years? Right. Well, our, our new name uh, is now uh, University of California College of the Law, San Francisco, known more colloquially as UC Law, San Francisco. That's the new name of the law school. Um, and it was changed because uh, the founder of our school, Serranus Hastings, uh, who was the first chief justice of the California Supreme Court and a man of great wealth, um, he had established the school with by a gift of a gold to the state, which was the first campus of the University of California. We we were the precursor of UC Berkeley or all the other UC campuses. So far, sounds and, good, right? Right. Um, uh, uh, what was recently um, revealed was mm -hmm. that um, Hastings um, financed or may have. I should say that there was evidence, that some evidence that uh, you, that uh, Serranus Hastings uh, financed what were so-called uh, Indian hunting parties, where white men went out and hunted Native Americans. 
Um, and they and he did this allegedly because I'm sorry. What do you mean by hunted? Are you literally killed uh, Native Americans? They oh, literally wow. went out and shot and killed Native Americans to drive Native Americans off of land that Hastings either had purchased or wanted to purchase. And so Hastings, you know, allegedly made money by killing Native Americans. That is the allegation. And I say allegation because I, I am woefully ignorant of all of the evidence mm -hmm. on one side or another. There's two yeah. different groups of historians who compete with each other. And I don't know that there's a, a definitive answer to this question, but um, it was a bad look. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> say the uh, least. Yeah. For the law school, which was, you know, we were the first law school established west of the Mississippi. We were the largest law school. We, I think we still are the largest law school west of the Mississippi. Um uh and the oldest. And 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 we um didn't want to associate ourselves with that. So we we dropped the name and at a great enormous cost to the school, because we we're now going to spend, I'm told, upwards of three million dollars to erase the name from our buildings oh, and our websites and other things you know this as you say this this is not um and i don't know i don't know all the proper names i'm more into history than i'm into news really this is not really like a woke movement or cancel culture or anything like that uh, well, as, well, as as you described this it's really this is a significant uh blot on the history of the college if the allegations are true, right? If the allegations are are true, uh, it is because the college was literally created with sort of blood money. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, personally, as a historian, um, I, I am of two minds about this. On the one hand, frankly, mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's, uh, it's smart politics, it's smart branding to disassociate ourselves from Hastings if there's any sort of stain on that name. Um, on the other hand, uh, as a general kind of observation, I am very much opposed to cancel culture because frankly, and this is what I write about in my history books, our whole history is a history of, of blood and racism and exploitation. And that's just the way it is. And we could say, um, you know, Washington, was a slaveholder. He made his money. He profited from of course, enslaving yeah. other people. And should we change the name of the Washington Monument or the city of Washington? Um, uh, you know, uh, even Lincoln was a man who made multiple racist statements in his political career. Um, uh, Lincoln, like Daniel Webster, supported the Fugitive Slave Acts. Um, uh, and he did so in order to save the union. Uh, Lincoln but that was the no political intention. reality of that time, right? Yeah, Fugitive Lincoln had no intention of, he was not an abolitionist. Yeah, he, he was not in favor of abolishing slavery. He was in favor of limiting the spread of slavery. Yeah. So there's yeah. all sorts of things you can, you can claim about any number of Americans. Uh, Hastings' sin is a particularly egregious one, if it's true. Yeah, that but, was my point. But I, I think that that cancel culture is a dangerous thing. And I would much rather, as a historian, that we talk about the sins of our fathers, that we talk about um, how our country became a great country, and that instead of, instead of just simply 
denying these things happened, we instead say that even people like Jefferson, who was a slaveholder, was capable of, of great thoughts and and the, the language that he used in the Declaration of Independence and the language of our constitution constituted a promise for something better in the future. And it's our obligation as Americans to try to realize the promise of those documents without denying our history. Uh, Professor Paul, that was a great and courageous answer. And I'm really glad that I asked that question. Um, Professor Paul, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a great pleasure. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news. <music>